listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So this morning in your Bibles, um, let's go to 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 9 today. But have you ever witnessed something that was so amazing or you saw something that was so incredible that it was hard to kind of find the words to really do it justice? You know, I thought of several in my, my life and uh, they're just moments that, man, they meant so much, they were so special, it's hard to really find the words to kind of communicate what was going on and, and what you saw and, and the feelings that, that went along with it. Thinking of, um, man, the day that stood at the front of a church and those doors opened in the back and Marla walked down, uh, probably still questioning if this was the right thing to do, uh, to marry me. Getting to see our kids for the very first time. Man, I think about the very first Sunday, as someone mentioned, almost four years ago. Uh, that we gathered in this building on August the 10th for our very first worship service. It was just something amazing about that. I uh, think of the trip that Marla and I were privileged to go on this last fall to Israel. It, it's just hard to describe certain things. Well, today's passage is very much like that. It's going to, I think, be one of the places in the Old Testament, if not the most incredible examples and pictures for us about the word grace. And it's going to involve a, an obscure man with a very hard name to pronounce. And so we're going to look at this today in 2 Samuel chapter 9. As you're finding your way there, though, I want to tell you a little story about grace. See, years ago, there was a little boy named Billy, and Billy grew up in a very difficult time, a difficult place, and even a difficult family. In fact, Billy would be that definition that we often use of underprivileged. First of all, Billy, he never knew his birth father. His birth father grew up on the nice side of town, and when Billy's 15-year-old mother told him that she was pregnant, he denied even knowing who she was. Second, to say that Billy grew up poor would really be an understatement. His mother, now on her second stepfather for Billy, I mean, worked hard to put food on the table and a roof over the head and, and clothes on his back. But for two people that never finished the ninth grade, it's, it's hard to find reliable work. Back for many years, Billy would not tell or could not actually tell you his address. Many times they would be evicted and whichever family member could take them in. And so he never really knew what his address was. As little Billy got older, he uh, was always looked at a little different because his clothes weren't that nice. He could not afford to pay to get a haircut from a trained barber. Birthdays and Christmases were often just things from the local dime store. Billy would often get off the bus a few stops early just so that people would not see where he called home. Billy never really felt included and it's often looked at as just kind of that charity case. Billy had some friends, but he kind of always kept them at a distance because he was 
you know, ashamed of his home life. But one day a young boy, a young friend of his, asked Billy if he wanted to go to church with him of all places. And the young boy was shocked at how excited Billy was to go. You see, Billy never went to church. And anything other than going home, I mean, it felt like Disney World to little Billy. Billy asked his mother, and she said, yes. But Billy then thought, okay, what do you even wear to this thing, this place called church? So Billy got his best jeans he had, found his best shirt. It was cold, and he needed a jacket, but Billy only had one. So Billy thought, I know what I'll do. I'll turn my jacket inside out because it's so stained. But that didn't stop Billy. Billy was nervous and he was also excited all at the same time. He didn't even know how to contain it. He wondered what, what his friend would think actually seeing his home. What would the people at church talk about? What would they be doing? His young friend and the father pulled up to Billy's house in one of the fanciest cars Billy had ever seen. And the boy's father was so nice. Billy walked into that church on a Monday night and he was amazed at how bright and clean everything was. Unlike his own home, it was cramped, it was cluttered and very low lit. Billy sat around a, a table with other boys and girls and the person, this adult, he read from this book that Billy'd never heard of before called the Bible. Oh, but Billy was glued to these stories. The, the lady read, and she was done. He was handed a little cup of Kool-Aid and three little cookies. On the drive home, Billy and his friends sat in the back seat as the father drove him home. And Billy could not remember the last time he'd felt so happy. As Billy was getting out of the car, he turned to thank the man and his friend. Even though Billy didn't have a lot of material things... His mother always taught him to be polite. So as Billy was about to shut that door, his friend turned to him and he said, Billy, would you like to go back tomorrow? I mean, Billy couldn't imagine. This place, two nights in a row? He was so excited to be able to go back to that church where everyone was so friendly and so nice. And to hear more stories, Billy would tell you from that really cool book. And he thought, man, cookies and Kool-Aid, what's better So he was excited, and he could not wait to ask his mother. So the next night, Billy was picked up again, and then on Wednesday, and even Thursday. And for those four days, Billy drank Kool-Aid, and he ate cookies, and he heard about this man named Jesus, and what he had done when he came to earth. But Billy had so many questions. This was all new to him. So on that drive home on a Thursday night, Billy was so nervous But he finally found the courage to ask his friend's father some questions. The man slowly pulled into that driveway, turned off the car, and put his arm on the seat and turned around, and he spoke to Billy. And he answered any questions Billy could come up with. And he told Billy all about Jesus. In that car, Billy found something that he didn't deserve. He could never earn, and he could never pay back. In that car... Billy found grace. So this morning, I want us to see another person who experienced grace, a display of love that is undeserved, unearned, and unrepayable. So you're in 2 Samuel there, chapter 9. 
A week ago, we saw chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. God promised David a kingdom and promised him protection, success, and someone to sit on his throne forever. Then in chapter 8, if you were to read through that, it's all about the kingdom kind of getting established. And David, it's almost like he's going on a war path. I mean, David is expanding the kingdom in every direction. He, in fact, goes on the offensive. He defeats the Philistines again and again, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Amorites, and many others. And as David is once again sitting at home experiencing peace and success, he reflects back, he thinks back to a time that he had a conversation with a man named Jonathan. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, we read about this vow, this covenant that they made. It says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for me or for my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan, to take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear. And again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. So Jonathan and David, they made this covenant, they made this vow... That they would look out for each other no matter what happened, no matter what came their way. They would protect one another and their families. And so David is reflecting back upon that promise. And this is where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 9. And so David said, You know, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So you see what he could have done, John, uh, David could have kind of just dismissed this. He could have thought, you know what, man, that was so long ago. I mean, things have changed. So much time has taken place. Things are just different now. He could have said, you know what, uh, it would be good to kind of go back and really look into that. But, man, I have so many other important things to do. I have more things that I need to focus on. In fact, the security of my dynasty is at stake. Because you see, any time a new king came into power, it was accepted, but it was also expected that the new king would eliminate everyone from the previous king. It would be expected that that's just what you did when you came into power. But instead, David looks for a way to show, and yours might say loving kindness. It's this word, uh, that basically means grace. Hesed is the word. So David goes looking for a way. Is there anyone out there that I could show loving kindness, hesed, that I could be grace for Jonathan's sake? He wants to remember that vow. So in verse 2 it reads, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, they brought him to him, and the king said, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. So he finds this one servant, still of the house of Saul, but he pledges allegiance to David. He says, I'm your servant. Then in verse 3, and the king looks him in the eye and he says, Is there not still anyone, someone of the house of Saul, that I may show kindness, that I might be grace? To him. 
So David asks, is there anyone left? Is there anyone of the house of David, particularly Jonathan, that I could show kindness towards? And Ziba's response is really interesting. It goes on to say, and Ziba looks at the king and he says, Yes, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. So Ziba says, yes, David, there is one. But there's something that you really should know about him before you go and do something about it. doesn't even mention his name. He only says he's crippled. In fact, if you were to turn back to chapter 4 of 2 Samuel in verse 4, the Philistines were attacking. And a, um, a maid picks up this young boy, this son of Jonathan, and she's running to escape. She trips and she falls, and this young boy is crippled from that point on. So in essence, he says, yes, David, there is someone, but you really need to think about this, because you need to know that he's not like you, and what you do might affect you in a negative way. He's not like anyone else. He's not really going to fit in. He, uh, he may even draw attention for the wrong reasons. In fact, David, you need to think about it. You've got a reputation to think about. But he says, yes, there is one. But, man, you should know he's lame. He's crippled. And David's response is beautiful. Look at verse 4. And the king said to him, where is he? I mean, David, he doesn't care. He just immediately says, where is this young man? And what we begin seeing is that this is grace. You see, grace is not picky. Grace doesn't act only when someone is deserving. He, he didn't ask any more questions about him. Grace does not move only when it benefits the giver. Grace doesn't care if the other person will make you look worse or weak. See, grace is this display of love that is undeserved, it is unearned, and it is unrepayable. So notice where this son is. We don't even know his name yet. And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Makir, the son of Amel, in Lodabar. So Lodabar is this place, and Lo means no. And Debar means pasture. So this son of Jonathan is hiding in this obscure, this, this desolate, this barren place in Philistine. And he's hidden himself away. He is hiding. He's, in fact, the only person that knows of his whereabouts is this old servant of Saul named Ziba. So David shows grace by sending for him. But imagine what this must have been like. You've been laying low... You've been kind of hiding from this one man, keeping a low profile. And in verse 5, Then the king David sent and brought him to the house of Machir, the son of Amel, in Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, there's his name, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, and he fell on his face to pay homage. I mean, can you imagine what that was like? He's at home, maybe sitting in front of the fire, in his place, hiding out, when all of a sudden there's a knock at the door. Hey, Mephibosheth, the king wants to see you. He's sitting, waiting, 
putting out his days, keeping a low profile, when all of a sudden he had to think, man, this is it. Man, this is how things end. I mean, I have been discovered, and I guess I can't hide anymore. I can't run. What am I going to do? But when he arrives, he does the only thing he knows to do. He throws those crutches to the side, and he falls on his face before David, who has all the rights and power over his life. I imagine that as he kind of fell to the ground, and in that moment, he was probably expecting the sword to strike the back of his neck. But instead, he hears the king calling by name. And David said, Mephibosheth. And then he answered, Behold, I am your servant. So he throws himself at the mercy of the king. He says, Listen, I am your servant. But think about it honestly that Mephibosheth knows there is nothing he can really offer David. He's the king over all of Israel. He's got more servants than he can count. And here is this crippled man bowing down before him saying, I am your servant. But he has nothing to offer David. But then Mephibosheth, here's the most beautiful words he probably could have ever have heard in verse 7. Then David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness, or hesed, grace, for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So you have to notice a couple of things here. First of all, he gets called by his name that there is something special when someone of power and prestige and honor knows who you are. And then he says, do not fear. I imagine Mephibosheth thinking this was a joke. In fact, if you read through 2 Samuel chapter 8, David is going on the war path. In fact, he even goes and kills two-thirds of all of the Moabites. David is part Moabite. That's even where he hid his family when he's hiding from Saul and he kills two-thirds of them. But then David is there with Mephibosheth and he says, Do not be afraid. But here's where things really get unbelievable. David says, Not only do I know who you are, not only do you have nothing to fear, I want to give back. I want to restore all that your grandfather had. David wants to restore the personal estate of Saul to Mephibosheth. All that was Saul's, it now becomes his. So David says, not only do I know who you are, not only do I have, you have nothing to be afraid of, not only will I restore all that was your grandfather's, he says, you will eat at my table. And this table, it's a, it's a sign of honor. It's a sign of inclusion. It meant, Mephibosheth, I now see you as one of my own family. So the king who Mephibosheth had been hiding from and fearing, the king knows his name. He's offered him protection and a future 
and even now a place of belonging. Because Mephibosheth knows this. He knows he doesn't deserve it. He knows he's done nothing to earn it. And he knows he can never do anything to repay the king for his grace. Because grace is that display of love that's undeserved. It's, it's unearned and it is unrepayable. And Mephibosheth gets it. Because notice in verse 8 what grace does to you. And he paid homage And he said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? You see, when you receive grace and you truly see it that way, as something that is undeserved, unearned, and you could not repay it, it's completely humbling. But it gets even better in verse 9. So the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said, All that belong to Saul... And all of his house, I've given it to your master's grandson. And notice what he tells him. And you, Ziba, and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce at your master's grandson may have bread to eat. And Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons And 20 servants. So not only did David give Mephibosheth Saul's land. He provided a way for the land to be managed and worked. So David's kindness, his his grace, his hesed towards Mephibosheth. Moves all the way to where Mephibosheth can be successful. It wasn't enough just giving the land. What could he do? He provided the way that he would always be provided for but I want to zero in on the next verse because of all the grace that David shows Mephibosheth it's this next part I think that's truly amazing in verse 11 then Ziba said to the king okay according to all that my lord the king commands his servant so shall your servant do and then here it is so Mephibosheth Ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So first of all, David's taking a big risk. David is taking a big risk here of encouraging thoughts of an uprising to overthrow him as king. In fact, all you have to do is turn about six chapters and you notice it. But another thing you see about grace is that sometimes, listen, grace, it can be risky. Sometimes grace is going to call you to do things that it may come back and bite you. It may harm you. But David is willing to take that risk. The second thing is the picture of what life must have been like for Mephibosheth for the years to come at David's table. Imagine the mill is fixed. The table is set. The family begins to make their way to the room, to the table, to the king's table. Man, there sits Amon. He's clever. He's witty. He makes his way to the table first. Absalom. Man, here he comes in. You can't miss him. He is tall. He is handsome, successful. I mean, he is the picture of manhood. Oh, and there's beautiful Tamar. Sweet the pure definition of elegance. 
gracefully enters. And there, at the head of the table, I mean, there's David. That shepherd that has now become king. He is successful. He's a warrior, a poet, king over all of Israel. But then there's an empty seat. Everyone looks around. Who, who, are, we, who are we missing at the table? Then all of a sudden you hear clump, clump, clump. And there's walks in Mephibosheth, hobbling on his crutches, weak, small, cripple. Maybe Mephibosheth smiles, leans those crutches up against the wall, and humbly joins the others as he takes his place at the king's table. But not as a guest, but as one of the king's sons. And he slides into that chair, covers up his crippled legs with the tablecloth of the king's grace. Because sitting there, he seems like all the others. Because grace is a display of love that's undeserved. It's, it's unearned and it is unrepayable. And Mephibosheth is the picture of of grace. But we are told a few more things about Mephibosheth. Look at verse 13. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. You see, David's grace not only reached Mephibosheth, it reached his entire family. He had a son. It's what we often don't realize that grace has generational impact. When grace is demonstrated, it impacts more than we realize. Because do you remember little Billy? Well, let me tell you the rest of the story. You know, after that Thursday night revival, Billy was a changed boy. Friday night, the church gave Billy his very own copy of the cool book. And he read that Bible cover to cover. During his high school years, Billy began to feel God leading him in a direction. Right after high school, Billy married his high school sweetheart. He enrolled in seminary. Billy wanted to be used by God to be a minister of the gospel. After seminary, Billy began pastoring his very first church. And soon he had three children. His youngest was a little girl named Bethany. His middle child was a young boy named Eric. And his oldest, he's standing before you today. You see, grace has generational impact. So lastly, the author ends this section in such an unusual way. He ends by saying, so Mephibosheth, he lived in Jerusalem. I mean, picture this. Mephibosheth goes from living in an obscure, barren, desolate area to the city of Zion, the capital of Israel. For he ate always at the king's table. Mephibosheth goes from hiding, of staying out of sight of the king, laying low to eating always at the king's table as one of his sons. But then the author ends this one phrase. Now 
He was lame in both his feet. Now, why would he do that? Why would he end with that? Well, I believe the author does this to remind us that the one who lives in Jerusalem now, the one who owns Saul's estate, has servants to work and to manage the land and sits every day at the king's table as one of his sons. He does it as a recipient of grace. You see, Mephibosheth had all the blessings, but he never deserved them, he never earned them, and he can never repay them. Because if he could, it would not be grace. But I wonder, do you see yourself in the story? Do you see yourself in this story of David? It begins with a young boy that has fallen. He's crippled. When that nurse is fleeing, and his life was forever changed. He was crippled by that fall. So when sin came to us through Adam and Eve, we also suffered a great fall. We fell from God's grace and we are crippled because of it. Sin rules us. It controls us. And like Mephibosheth, we try to run and hide from God. Mephibosheth was weak and he was lame. The Bible says this about you and I in Romans 5, that while we were still weak, but one day, hope showed up at Mephibosheth's door. It knocked on that door. But hope has also showed up for us. The verse goes on to say, But at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And Mephibosheth, he stands for everything that was against David. By every account, Mephibosheth deserved David's wrath. He was from the line of Saul. He threatened David's kingdom. But instead, he brought him from Lodabar to Jerusalem from being an enemy to be given a place at the king's table. So, you know, we sit under God's wrath also, living obscure, desolate lives without hope of a future. But the good news is that we can move from being enemies to one of his sons and daughters. The verse goes on to say, but God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from Him from the wrath of God? For all we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? You see, this is not just a story about David and Mephibosheth. It's also a story about us. We are the Lord's Mephibosheth. God has absolutely no business loving us. But He does. And not only does He loves us, He wants us to one day sit at His table as one of His sons and daughters. And it only happens by grace. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged and if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.